Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Saturday Morning Life. You're joined by myself, Umar Bhatti, uh, Noshavan Zafar here in the office. And uh, we also have Hamad Khan from the studio, uh, from, from home, sorry. Um, today we're looking at quite a few topics within our show. But uh, the main uh, main remit of our topic will be around the leadership and uh, will also be around uh, climate change and a new section which we have added to the uh, show which we will be introducing is a review of a book in the last half an hour of this show um, which we'll be looking at and be telling you all about. Um, but first, as usual and as per uh, uh, we usually do stuff. We will start off with the um, news section. So, Noshiwan, welcome to the show. It is hot today. I hope uh, you bought your sun uh, sunscreen and your sun cap. Yeah. Well, Waalaikumsalam. It's great to be here as always. Yeah, I think I'm actually enjoying the the relatively cool temperatures of of uh, I think it's about 27 in my area today. Um, just sort of mentally beginning to brace myself for Monday's heat wave. Uh, but I think yeah, we're all going to 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 go through that together. So, uh, God willing, we'll all get through that as well. God willing, God willing. Um, but yeah, so first news story from me today. Um, I think it's always a challenge to find something that might not be in the mainstream news cycle. I think we we all see the same things uh, time in time out, uh, no matter which sto- source we get our news from. Um, but I found a, a, a story which I think might be a little bit different to, to what we're hearing all the time at the moment. So BMW, uh, the German car company, has been criticised for putting certain optional extras such as heated seats behind a paywall. So anyone who's sort of got a car or has had a car at any point probably is familiar with the idea that cars come with some equipment as standard and then you can pay extra for, for certain features, right? Uh, such as heated seats or... Or, or air conditioning or whatever it is, right? Um, BMW, and, and I, I'm going to preface this. I think anyone who spent any time in or around the motor trade will probably realize German cars are probably very guilty of this, uh, in, which is offering things that should be standard at a certain price point uh, as an optional extra. Mm. Example, case in point, uh, you can buy a hundred thousand pound Porsche that you have to pay extra to to get a, wind, a windscreen wiper on the back window for. <laughs> really? Yeah. Anyway, um, so what BMW is doing is basically introducing a subscription uh, feature for certain optional extras. So they're calling the package connected drive, um, but it's it's a little bit confusing for some people. So. Connected Drive is a subscription service for certain features. So that could be, um, for example, adaptive cruise control. That's the one uh, which uses the radar to sort of slow your car down uh, based on on what it sees in front, Um, even if you've set the car to a certain speed and and basically to keep you safer. Heated seats, you get get the gist, right? There's a number of features that could could be uh, optional. Now, traditionally, you would just pay a, a fixed sum of money um, if you were the the person who's ordering the car brand new uh, from the dealership. 
Um, but now what BMW's uh, doing is offering this subscription service. But the catch is, in order to be able to switch on a feature even, the car must be installed with the hardware required for it. So people are, are basically saying, well, if the car has heated seats, why do I have to pay £15 a month just to use it? Or if the car already has all the sensors and other computers required for, for any other sort of technological piece on the car, whether that's like that that, that cruise control with the radar I mentioned or any other feature, uh, why do I have to pay extra if, if the actual pieces required to perform that function are already in the car? Now, BMW says that if you pay the amount up front, you get the feature for life, i.e. it's just permanently switched on. But the question I'm now wondering is, because BMW, I think, are being a little bit hazy with, with the information they're putting out, is does this mean all cars are now fitted with all the features, but you have to pay to switch them on? Or if, for example, you're the second keeper of a car, i.e. you're not the person who's bought it brand new, but you're buying it now that it's a few years old, um, how do you know that your car's got whatever feature you want? say for example you wanted that fancy cruise control but the first owner didn't do it then you can't pay the subscription to have it, it kind of is a bit confused I don't understand the purpose behind it is basically what I'm saying right. because I'd get it in the old in the old way of doing things which was you either choose an option or you don't and then that's it there's no complication after that right but now I'm, I'm not getting what they're trying to achieve here, other than maybe a few extra pounds a month out of their customers this 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 is really strange to me. Um, uh, my initial reaction is like, what what is happening here? Um, this is turning out to be like Netflix and all those other subscription based uh, companies. Um, if we think about cars right now, um, the ones which won't be fitted in, uh, those will be looked at alternatively, right? Uh, my Golf v- VW is a f- has cruise control, um, has heated seats, so I'll be more than happy to stick with that. But um, it is something um, baffling me as to why they are doing this. And of course, in the article, they also mentioned they've, they've tried to contact BMW, but they haven't responded as of yet. So it'll be interesting to see what their sort of justification is for this. Yeah, as in, so, so BMW spokesperson did say that, for example, if you're, if you're not the, the first keeper of the car, say you buy the car secondhand, it allows you, or, or even if you are the first keeper, but it allows you the option to, to potentially trial a feature, for example, for a few months. And if you decide you like it, you can pay a fixed fee to have that feature uh, activated for life on that car. Um, the example they gave with the heated seats were £15 a month. Uh, but if you pay for a whole year up front, you get it at a reduced rate of £150. But if you pay them £350, you can have the heated seats for life. But But again, my question is, that sounds... That £350 number sounds very similar to roughly what you'd expect to pay for heated seats up front anyway. So I'm not understanding the subscription model because why wouldn't people just pay to have the feature for life? That is it's, baffling. It's, it's just confusing. I mean, particularly at this time when people are sort of yep. obviously counting the pounds in their bank account, right? I don't think we need more options like this people obviously are looking to downscale and economize um but i guess another question it raises right car production in the uk and i'm sure this is probably similar in other parts of the world but in the uk has been at near historic lows part in part um due to the uh, microchip shortage 
Um, and as a result, a lot of car companies at the moment are simplifying the, the, their portfolios of what they're offering, but they're also uh, reducing the amount of available options on a car. So certain options, even if the, the manufacturer has designed them to work, they've actually told certain customers, due to the microchip shortage, you've either got the option of waiting indefinitely because we don't know when we've got enough semiconductors to, to, to add these features, or we can just build you your car without whatever features you wanted. Um, and obviously give you a partial refund in return as well. But if BMW says the features are fitted at the factory and just switched on, mm. has BMW somehow become immune to the, the shortage of the chips as well then? It will be interesting to see whether different companies will be looking to implement the same sort of new subscription rate uh, at their at their companies, uh, at their um, f- manufacturing uh, companies um, well let's see I mean people um, they're looking to of course look for greener cars so it'll be interesting to see how uh, what they give and what they don't give um, but yeah let's keep an eye on that one and see what the future holds for us um, Hamad welcome to the show um, I hope you are enjoying the sun wherever you are um, you have a new story to share with us yes I do I'm going to talk about the James Webb telescope so I mean, you guys might remember that they initially had a launch on Christmas Day last year. Uh, This is the world's biggest, uh, most powerful space uh, observatory that's ever been built so far in history. And it uses infrared um, energy to look at deep galaxies and space structures. So this is, we're basically looking at uh, the deepest um, and the most furthest we've ever looked at in space, which is quite extraordinary. And just within the last week, NASA, weirdly enough, under the approval of the U.S. president, um, began to release a lot of the images that the James Webb uh, Telescope has um, started to take pictures of. Um, you guys might have seen the huge uh, galaxy clusters that was um, photographed and released on Twitter. And uh, these structures are actually like five billion light years away from where we are right now. Obviously, that's very far. Our mind glazes over that distance. But the really interesting thing, thing for me, and I, I always think this is really interesting in astronomy, is that because of the light distance, what we're actually seeing is in the past. So we're really seeing this picture has captured what the galaxy from that distance looked like 13 billion years ago, um, which is extraordinary to even think about. Um, and there's a lot of interesting analysis that people have been doing. The main thing that people have been focusing on is the um, ushering of this new um, space era and photography uh, because we can have such a higher resolution in the universe around us that we're hoping, well, astronomers are hoping um, and are excited by some discoveries that they could make. Um, there's hope that they can actually uh, better identify uh, water sources in planets and in gases so hopefully again there will be um it'll be a stronger instrument to see whether there are planets or other satellites or moons that are hospitable to life and so again it's ushering a new search for um extraterrestrial life which is quite extraordinary um and i i I keep thinking about it from the islamic perspective as well I, i read an article when the james webb telescope was launched um in on Christmas Day last year, and there was a Times article where the journalist was saying, oh, well, I wonder what happens to the uh, religious uh, literature and religion and spirituality in this new space age. Obviously, because once you see the progress of science, you kind of, the author was arguing, you struggle to see where religion has a space 
uh, in this new era. And, you know, you, you were reminded of the verses of the Quran where um, Allah Ta'ala talks about um, him being Lord of all the worlds, him talking about um, how there is possibility of extraterrestrial life. Um, you know, there's the specific Arabic, like Baba is land-dwelling animals um, that cr- uh, crawl and creep. So there's uh, connotations to life that's beyond our own. Um, and so it just reminds me that actually within the progress of science is also the progress of Islamic spirituality. So this is a quite an exciting picture for, for me to see in the past week. Uh, indeed, actually, uh, Hamad, I was, um, I was funnily enough on TikTok uh, and uh, usually a person who um, I don't follow but usually comes up on my page is uh, a, a, a sort of well-known TikToker and he actually spoke about this as well um, and it sort of got me interested into uh, the pictures as well and I'm just looking at the pictures myself. Uh, they're quite fascinating if you look at them and quite mesmerizing as well. Um, at the how things look from the outside you know it's that old age question what is outside of earth and uh you know with these pictures you really really uh really strengthens your um your belief in god that there that you know in in what he has mentioned in the quran as well uh you know he's the master of all all, all, all the world so does that mean you know could there be other forms of life out there or in other universes are we are we the only one so you know these sort of questions which get asked commonly uh, within astro- astronomy and within the sphere of uh, religion really does um, uh, create a a momentum uh, you can say of uh, uh, you know there must be life out there uh, sorry there the, the must be a god out there that is is doing all of this and it can't just be all an accident really um so yeah i think it's yeah. great that you bought bought this up uh, for our listeners um and is there any any hope that we can is any 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 future plans for you know to um make this um something uh, more out of this yeah so i mean you know like i said there's a lot of projects that they're hoping to actually search for extraterrestrial life because this is a much more refined uh, piece of instrument um so that they they have programs looking for life. Um, their sort of ideas of life is very, uh, I think, non-fantastical, you know, like pieces of single-celled organisms or whatever else. But, uh, I mean, when you do look at even the scope and the magnitude of how far this telescope has taken picture of the universe, you do kind of wonder. I mean, every speck you see in the photograph is a galaxy in itself, um, which is extraordinary. Um, so you, there's this expectation of incredible possibility um, that's out there. But you also reminded me about, you know, the uh, sociological impact that happens on us as like a species when we look at such images. I remember the, there was an article that spoke about the first Earthrise image as well, taken from space. So I think it was um, the image taken from the moon um, when, when, uh, when um, we landed on the moon. And again, it was, you know, at a time where there was uh, quite a lot of wars. Well, we obviously just came out of the Second World War 20 years on. There was a lot of um, uh, economic depression and there was a lot of riots and sociological movements, particularly within the West. And a lot of people had this sense of community and being tethered to humanity um, just by seeing, you know, our common global home. And I guess you know, you have this sort of same sense as well when you see how we are just this one small speck all together amongst the vastness of the universe that is our home too. 
I think yeah, that's um, that is the the sort of question we ask. Um, you know, we're just that one small particle. Uh, we're not that important really to the whole conversation, um, and you know, we're not that special at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, it really does um, make you wonder and think what else is out there. But thanks for bringing that uh, new story up, uh, Hamad. Um, uh, let me just bring up my new story then, uh, my contribution. Um, I think, um, you know, with all the strikes which are happening, I'm not going to go into that, but holidaymakers um, who are looking to go from Heathrow, um, there's been a cap put on various airlines uh, because of, of course, staff shortages at Heathrow. Uh, as we can remember, I think we discussed it last time on the show as well, um, a lot of staff shortages uh, are are being experienced uh, firsthand at Heathrow Airport uh, because a lot of people were fired at the start of the pandemic, and now they're try- when they are trying to be rehired, um, they're being offered lower salaries. And actually, at one point a couple of weeks ago, uh, BA uh, staff uh, were actually looking to strike uh, at one point. But they managed to sort of uh, delay that because uh, meaningful talks were happening. So um, you know that was that that's uh, that's how far the situation got to. And in this um, in this story, I bring to you now uh, Emirates. Uh, of course, they operate also from Heathrow. They have about five flights going from uh, uh, the daily uh, daily flights they have uh, to and from Heathrow. So about ten in total, I guess. And uh, they've been asked to, of course, cut down as well. Um, all flights have been asked to cut down, and also there's been put a cap of hundred thousand passengers uh, at Heathrow. And um, they, of course, came out very strongly s- suggesting that this is not something they can comply with, um, as they are, of course, one of the most recognised and, if not the best, airline company around the world. And this would, all, of course, hit their finances really hard. But you got to remember the experience of the customers through uh, through the Heathrow Airport, the security through Heathrow as well, and that is a, 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 an overriding, uh, you can say, a justification uh, for these uh, uh, um, cap because uh, what loads of people were experiencing is last minute cancellations, and here we've seen Heathrow come out in t- uh, together with uh, a joint statement with. Um, uh, Emirates saying that they have agreed to and are willing to work with uh, the airport to remedy the situation over the next two weeks and that, that they will try to keep the demand and capacity in balance providing uh, passengers with smooth reliable journey through the summer um, it's interesting uh, because uh, when we discussed this uh, uh, last uh, last time on the show uh, there was an estimation that around it will take around 18 months to sort of fix this uh, and we've just started. We're at the start of it, and um, this cap, which is being introduced by Heathrow, is valid for around uh, uh, eight uh, until September, as far as we know. It could extend. Um, of course, summer holidays is the first time I think uh, after a long time people are trying to experience summer holidays without restrictions and without uh, without the um, lockdowns as well. So hence why there's a huge, uh, huge um, pressure on the aviation industry to sort of deliver and make sure that uh, whatever we uh, whatever <laughs> our customers are trying to wherever they're trying to go they go there quick and they don't um, you know make a fuss about it um, but for me who who, who who is going from Heathrow of course I'm a bit I'm a bit um, uh, skeptical about how my experience will be through Heathrow because uh, I'm going from terminal two 
uh, Temo 2 was you know that famous picture which was going around um, um, around on the internet where there were loads of baggage uh, unleft uh, looking to be claimed um, so you know you, you have that in the back of your mind that you know instead of leaving three or four hours early you may need to leave seven hours early <laughs> just to get to the airport so uh, that is something which might be playing in a lot of people's mind um, but all in all I think um, it is going to take us a sort of a long time to try and get back into uh, where we used to be in terms of uh, you know trying to get through to um, uh, your uh, security, your check-in, and uh, your luggage and whatnot, uh, that whole experience will need to change, of course. Um, and I think um, this, of course, will impact everyone uh, with hope, uh, not hopefully, but it looks like maybe also with the price rises, everyone looking to try and go to cheap holidays or, and also enjoy their time. But uh, let's just see what happens. I think um, when we come into our next two, three shows, we'll probably have a bit more of a better idea what the situation will be. Um, it is interesting, of course. Um, when, uh, I'm not sure if uh, other countries are taking the same approach, but certainly in the UK, uh, we're, uh, we're, it's very much evident from the news uh, that we receive that around uh, different airports, including Manchester as well, that there's been a shortage of staff, uh, which is uh, affecting a lot of the customer experience. Um, so let's go to Norshavan. Uh, Norsha, you got a new story, one more new story for us? Yeah, so I think this is the one everyone's probably already heard me allude to earlier. It's the one everyone's aware about. Um, but of course, we are expecting a pretty significant heat wave on Monday and Tuesday next week. Um, current estimates suggest that uh, uh, on Monday and possibly again on Tuesday will be record-breaking heat. Uh, the current uh, record for, for heat in the UK stands, I believe, at around 38 degrees. Uh, and that was in Cambridgeshire in 2019. Uh, I actually remember that day quite well because it was the day I was submitting my dissertation in. Uh, and so that wasn't fun. But... Um, yeah, so what we're expecting on Monday is is significant heat. It's the first time the Met Office has actually issued a red weather warning, which means significant risk to life. So this means that the heat is, is going to be so severe that it poses a health risk even to healthy individuals, not just those in vulnerable groups. Um, there's a 50% chance that, that temperatures will uh, exceed 40 degrees centigrade at, in some places in, in the UK. Uh, and, and the Met Office has put an estimation that there's an 80% chance that regardless of 40 plus or, or not, uh, we will see uh, a new record for the highest temperature ever recorded in the UK. Um, so obviously some pretty s uh, serious weather we're expecting um, uh, and obviously with that the disruption and, 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 and the risk risk to life really um, the advice really has been to avoid travel where we're not necessary uh, stay indoors drink plenty of water um, I, kn I know uh, a lot of people um, who who are able to work from home for example will be working from home uh, on Monday and Tuesday next week uh, and obviously I think uh, it's, it's a good point actually to, to remember our key workers at that point, those people for example who work in the transport sector, who work in the healthcare sector and so on um, these people are, are going to be going out and serving us um, but they're obviously going to have to go out in, in the, the, the roasting heat 
next week uh, in order to carry out their jobs which is ultimately to serve the British public um, so so I know obviously it's, it's quite easy to be critical of people in public service um, but but I think yeah let's let's be a little bit respectful there and 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 get, cut them a break here and they don't have an easy job at the best of times but but when contending not just with the heat themselves but but naturally as people we, we usually get a little bit aggravated and a little bit sort of uh, uh, short-tempered when, when we're when we're hotter than we'd like to be so so let's just be kind to each other I think yeah I think that is um, very good advice uh, reasonable advice as well um, of course also affected will be the schools um, yeah. they're being told to either shut or you know let kids come in their PE kit so imagine being a school kid at this time uh, no school for two days yeah. I, I know my cousins um, uh, they've been told that then they won't have any schools yeah my sister's going into school on, on Monday oh. uh, they were, they're told PE kits allowed but I, I've got a bit of a feeling that even if they go in on Monday, they might just be like, "It's not worth it for Tuesday." Yeah, they could all change. Let's yeah. uh, let's hope for the best. Um, hopefully, they give out free ice creams. You never know, just yeah. to cool them down. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think we've uh, concluded our new section here. Uh, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with uh, our topics, our main topics, which uh, is around leadership and climate change. So join us after a short break. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. Allah, the Lord of glory, has also given me the glad tidings that some of the nobility and some of the kings will also join our group. He vouchsafed to me the revelation. I shall grant you blessing upon blessing, so much so that kings will seek blessings from your garments. Those who seek blessings in this manner will enter into the bath, the Pledge of Allegiance. Because of their entering into the bath, their governments will also practically belong to this community. Then I was shown those kings in a vision. They were riding upon horses and were not less than six or seven. I saw in a blessed dream a group of sincere believers and just and righteous kings, some of whom belong to this country, India some to Arabia, some to Iran, some to Syria, some to Turkey, and some to other regions of which I am not aware. Thereafter, I was told by Allah the Almighty, وأدخلهم في المخلصين إني مهين من أراد إهانتك. These people will affirm your righteousness and will believe in you and will call down blessings upon you and will pray for you. I shall bestow great blessings upon you, so much so that kings will seek blessings from your garments, and I will join them amongst your sincere followers. This is the dream that I saw. And this is a revelation that was vouchsafed to me by God, the All-Knowing.
أكبر أشهد أن لا أشهد أن محمدا You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life. Your journey myself, Umar Bhatti, and my co-host, Noshawan Zafar, and Hamad Khan, who's joining us remotely. We are back after a short break. Uh, we covered a bit of uh, the news stories, some important ones, some which are not in the news a lot, but something to start of your day. Uh, now we will mo- move on to our main topic, which is uh, around uh, two topics, which uh, what we have in total three um, segments, but the first one we'll start off with the uh, uh, leadership. Uh, what does what does it what does it mean to be a leader? Um, I think uh, you know it's quite re- reasonable. Everyone knows why we're talking about leadership uh, in the UK at least. There's a new prime minister to be unveiled um, on September in September, sorry, and um, quite a lot of the reasons. Uh, the current Prime Minister or now the caretaker Prime Minister has been ousted is because uh, of the way he has, uh, some argue, led uh, internally his party or, you know, some people may look at he's made some right decisions internationally uh, and, you know, led the country through the pandemic as well. Uh, But that is all up to debate how you look at a leader from which point of view do you look at him or her uh, uh, from his moral conduct, uh, from his policies or his behavior. How do you uh, define a leader? Um, really, it's, it is a difficult topic uh, to touch. So we, you know, we've given it half an hour to look at it. Uh, we'll try to cover as much as we can. Uh, we'll also be looking at the Islamic context. You know, what does Islam say about a leader? What, 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 who, who, who is a leader in that sense? And can we all be leaders amongst our own family members? Uh, be uh, good positive role models within society? So we'll have a look at uh, that. Uh, and of course, yesterday was the first time uh, the five candidates of the Conservative Party who are looking to become Conservative uh, party leader and uh, the next prime minister of the united kingdom uh, had a the hustings uh, sort of the uh, in-person debates because everything has been happening so far behind closed doors uh, trying to get mps to of course cut it down to five uh, well the next time you'll see there will be two left and uh, i think that will be on monday i believe uh, when the final two will be revealed after the mps will have uh, the conservative mp sorry will be uh, voting uh, privately again. Leadership. Uh, well, if we look at a a basic definition, it's the ability of an individual or group of individuals to influence and guide followers of other mem uh, or other members of an organisation. So, really, uh, with you, with uh, anyone being in a so, let's give an example: of a football team. You have a captain that is your leader, or you have a manager that is your leader. You have natural leaders who are born out, and that's just how human race works. You always have someone leading and people following, and you see, 
look to influence and look to be influenced by them even in your household you look at your parents those are leaders to you and uh, those who you look up to and usually you are influenced by them or even in your group of friends and circles so really those uh, people who are leaders uh, you are influenced by them greatly and that is uh, a, a fact um, but in this context we're talking about national leaders those who people look up to and have to follow the rules and I think that is where we will be sort of heading and that's the sort of direction we'll be looking at. So just to comment on um, the current state of politics, I guess we can lightly touch on it. Uh, Noshirwana, uh, we'll go to you. Um, it's been sort of a difficult uh, period for the UK to go through. Uh, we've in the past, what since Brexit, we've had one, two, three and now our fourth prime minister uh, since David Cameron, uh, you can say, and um, different type of leaders we've had, uh, some strong, some just uh, letting things go play, uh, making huge decisions for the countries. Um, thoughts? Yeah, so it's uh, it's definitely a, a topic which I think it's easy to have very strong opinions about. I'm sure uh many of our listeners do just just like myself um we'll try to keep it uh balanced in our discussion today um but ultimately i think one of the key tenets for a successful leader is accountability um without it you're not you're not having a country or an organization or even a group of people that can that can put faith in its leadership that believes it has integrity i think uh, it's key for any leadership to have integrity and integrity depends on accountability so the reason boris johnson has been ousted i think uh beyond just a sort of discontent in, within his party has been obviously there have been a number of scandals over the last 12 months um and i i think that at this point backbenchers within his party are, are getting concerned about the reputational damage it's causing um, but really it's raised questions of how can so many scandals occur uh, within a party uh, if the leadership is supposedly strong and, and the short answer to, to that is the leadership wasn't strong because strong leadership will define the values that any group of people stands for and, and ensure that, that people are sort of kept in line with those values. Um, so in, in politics, I think, uh, regardless of what your, your, political, what your political views are, you, you probably want whoever you're putting your vote behind to be a person of honesty, of truth, of dignity, of, of integrity, right? Um, and, and that's... That, that's these are qualities that are irrespective, I think, of uh, a particular politician's view on the world in terms of, i.e., their politics, right? Mr. Johnson, I, I believe, failed in that regard. Um, the number of scandals we saw in his party were very much symptomatic of a leader who let things slide, i.e., I think given his own past, given however many things had been sort of uh, allegated against him, a lot of people thought, well, if if Johnson can do that, so can I. All right, it's very much a case of leading by example, um, and so 
if 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 you are put in that sort of position, it is very difficult to get the trust of uh, your party and and even more so your country behind you. Um, I think it's very easy to to say many quite strongly worded things about uh, the Conservative Party in recent years, particularly if 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 you're not a person who votes for them or uh, ordinarily. Um, but but what we've seen in recent years, I I feel has been a general decline in standards, not just within the government, and I've said this before on this show as well, but across politics. I think we, we've we almost allowed our standards to slip, and therefore, uh, just to put it out there, I currently don't think there's a single candidate within the House of Commons I believe would be a suitable Prime Minister for this country. It's not just a Conservative Party thing, but it's things like this that slowly lead to the demise of, of our society as well. As in, we've already seen the demise of the quality of our politicians across the house. Um, I fear it probably is spreading across the country as a whole. True. Yeah, it's a very interesting thought. Uh, no MP you, th- you believe or who stood out, stood out for you so far could uh, lead the country. But Hamad, I'm going to come over to you. Um, what is what are we looking for in a leader usually and um, what does Islam say about leadership in that sort of sense what does Islam promote within the leader yeah I just wanted to talk thank you for letting me talk about that because it was really interesting to see you know the political climate of this country and how certain ministers decide to give up their role for the sake of integrity so a lot of the resignation letters that people would have seen in Twitter and online was mentioning the fact that they can no longer continue in serving whatever, whatever in good faith because they want to uphold integrity. And so I feel like that is one of the core and common sort of attributes that people recognize is really important within a leader. And that, that was one of the stated reasons why a lot of the ministers decided to um, give up their um, office duties last week. Um, the week before. And it actually reminded me of, um, I mean, it's quite apt. So there was, I had an essay to write like two years ago about this Roman emperor. It was, uh, the question was, um, does absolute power corrupt absolutely? And there's this example of, and I'm going to butcher the name, but his name was Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus. Um, He was a famous Roman statesman because he was someone who gained fame for selflessly devoting himself to the public. So that's another thing, selfless devotion that you might recognize as important in leadership um, and in times of crisis. But the most important and remarkable thing that he did was he gave up his reins of power um, once he uh, thought that the crisis was over. So once he recognized that he had done his dues, he decided that he's not going to stay in power any longer. And so again, there's the idea of selflessness. And it's what's common in democracy is transferring power. Uh, we've seen in modern democracy that there's been a lot of issues with transferring of power, particularly in the U.S. Um, in between Trump and Biden. But also some could say that actually um, the current prime minister here in the U.K. is also having some issues with transference of power um, within his own party. Um, so the idea here is about whether you put your country and you put the people of the country and their needs above your own self. And this historical example of this Roman emperor, Lucius Cincinnatus, um, was, was a very common example. Um, but in terms of what Islam says, Islam says, uh, says a lot about leadership. Um, and one of them, well, really, the Quran recognizes that any sort of leadership is actually a burden and a responsibility. It's not something that you should aspire to do. However, when you're called upon it, you should actually give your best to it and serve people selflessly.
And so there's a, a, a hadith, a saying of the Holy Prophet وسلم, who said, each of you is a shepherd and each responsible for his flock. Now, this is just a, a saying of the Prophet talking about the common citizen and talking about the common duties that we have to one another. But you can imagine the magnitude to what degree a person in political power is to his own people, to the magnitude to what um, a person who is a leader should be as a shepherd. Um, and so there's a need to actually be caring and devoted to uh, the public that you're serving, but also to recognize that this is more than yourself. This is beyond your own ego, beyond your own vested interest. This is about making sure that you're delivering what needs to be delivered to the common society. Um, and it was interesting, Omar, that you mentioned about whether we look at the moral attributes, the characters, or we look at the actual um, delivery and what the political leaders deliver, you know, what's important. And I think that actually the foundation is your moral character because then that precipitates how you act in the political arena. And we've seen that a lot of people talk about political leaders and their moral um, standings and their uh, opinions and perceptions because then that also makes up how they lead other people. That also makes up their views. So, you know, again, the Holy Prophet said that each of you is a shepherd and each responsible for his flock. And you can imagine that the leader being the greatest shepherd um, has to lead his flock also. Um, and there's many examples of the Holy Prophet being a, a most exemplary leader um, in times of need as well, whether that's towards selfless devotion again, or whether that's recognizing that you have to, um, you know, make way for other people. Yeah, that's that's really, really powerful and valid point that Hamad's just shared there because I think when we bring this sort of mindset thinking back towards the world of politics it's very rare that we see a person so genuinely put the interests of his or her country ahead of their own um, I think someone once said that nowhere in the world is there a politician who makes a lot of money but politicians all around the world take a lot of money i.e. they use their position of power for their own vested interests as, as Hamad just mentioned and and so when someone does act honourably and, and with integrity it's actually quite refreshing and, and, and a breath of fresh air even an example that comes to mind is a few years ago, um, the the now uh, the 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 now de deceased uh, former prime minister of Japan Shinzo Abe, um, who who was recently assassinated, um, he stood down as as prime minister of Japan a few years ago, uh, not because he had lost the mandate of his country or his parliament, but because he had a prevailing long term health condition, um, and and he said it was not in the interest of the Japanese people for him to stay in office, because he had his own battles to be fighting outside of, of, of politics. And so he stood down because he said he could not afford uh, the time or the energy to lead the country and, and provide it with his best effort. And, and I, I just thought that was, it was such an unusual thing to do in politics, even though if we think about it from a perspective of integrity, it's the only thing you should do. Um, Whereas we see here in in the West, uh, particularly, uh, and and all across the world, to be fair, uh, even if uh, a, a sort of a state leader falls ill, and I'm not talking about a short-term illness like a cold or something, I'm talking about a serious grave illness, there are people who are physically incapacitated and yet they want to lead a country from their deathbed, 
right? I mean, that's not in the interest of of a country. Um, I'm not exactly sure what what people are getting out of it by 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 operating in this way, other than perhaps, as Hamad mentioned, fulfilling their egos, um, and bringing it back to I guess what Islam says. I think we we really ought to see positions of public service. These are not these are not something necessarily to aspire to because of the riches and I think that's the problem that has occurred right as in they have become relatively lucrative opportunities maybe not directly but very much so indirectly in terms of the the business connections and so on that, that you're able to form in your years in, in politics and then you're able to take that and move in uh, to business. We take for example the former Deputy Prime Minister of the UK Nick Clegg is a senior executive at Facebook um, I'm sure he's making uh, many, many millions of pounds a year. Uh, but again, on uh, I, I would not be in the slightest bit uh, surprised if the, him getting his role after leaving Downing Street was a result of his experience, or or I, I say experience with with inverted commas here uh, in politics. I'm not quite sure how 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 a job in politics directly relates into social media, but you kind of get where I'm going with here. I think. Yeah. Um it's it is um a question always asked um about leadership what are we looking for and i think it's been um told very perfectly um one thing uh we need to also look at is um how do we create leaders uh in situations um because leaders don't just you know come out of nowhere they're taught they of course learn the traits they are influenced <coughs> Sorry, they're they're influenced by others. So really, um, another angle uh, we should delve into is how how do we create leaders? Um, because at the end of the day, uh, a leader has to be in some way you know authoritative, uh, charismatic in some sense, be reasonable, be intelligent at times, and also of course make uh, hard decisions. But I think. If we look at um, His Holiness Hazrat Mizar Masur Ahmed, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and of course all of his predecessors, predecessors and the Prophet Messiah uh, the awaited uh, Prophet Messiah, of course, <coughs> then we can see that um, during the difficult periods of times, uh, leaders, uh, the, the, they were of course uh, uh, caliphs, and you know, a, 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 a Khalifa, sorry, is a, is a, is a leader, and he's the one leading us uh, right now through this uh, this part of life. And he, of course, also has um, said in detail and sp- uh, spoken detail about what a leader should be. And he's spoken in detail that a leader should be leading, uh, you know, should be leading by example. Um, and a leader, is someone who uh, takes his people on a path uh, which which he walks upon himself. So really in that sense, um, <laughs> all of us, all three of us are working in some sort of capacity. And uh, we may see, uh, you know, our line managers or managers, you know, trying to either give us work or uh, 
telling us to do stuff uh, which we don't want to do but um, I guess it's that sense of when you know that person goes over through with us how to do it uh, you know which uh, what is the correct way of trying to do it uh, you know giving us time then leaders are appreciated and they are uh, come out of that when they have that experience of um, you know you know you know okay I know that this may be difficult but let's try and do this that is when leaders are sort of created in in, in that position and of course another angle people take that they have to be positive role models who they can learn from and benefit from and that's a key thing uh, uh, for a leader because remember you're not just uh, you know just their own position of power at the end of the day you're, you're you're serving the people in whatever capacity you're at, maybe a local level uh, a council level which may be a council level or national level or international level uh, you need to be leading by example and showing that you're a positive role model you can learn and people below you can benefit um, so it really is important how we uh, define this and if we look Within the Ahmadi Muslim community, we have, of course, the auxiliary organization, which is the Ahmadi Muslim Youth Association, uh, which is a youth body uh, aged from 7 to 40, uh, primarily, of course, f- 15 to 40 for the youth. And then, you know, we have a young age group. And over there, you have about, so you have local leaders, you have regional leaders, and of course, you have the national president of that. And throughout the whole process, uh, the youth members are being encouraged and of course are being voted actually uh, the local ones especially and of course the national president they are being voted into position of trust uh, by the local people uh, to lead and and continue the good works of uh, the community maybe internally or externally and you know the famous uh, motto of the Ahmadi Muslim Youth Association you cannot reform uh, uh, the nation without first reforming its youth and really in this sense we're seeing in practicality when we're speaking about practicality we see that uh, leaders are being uh, being nurtured from a very young age uh, of how to lead a group of people how to lead, lead sort of your own cabinet you can say really uh, and make the decisions uh, in, in unison with others yeah and I think furthermore just to add into that I think uh, for people who potentially are outside of that community, it, it sometimes can seem a little bit strange that obviously people work in such unity and, and they follow the guidance of that leadership all the way up to His Holiness the Caliph, right? Um, but but it's quite important to note a distinction between uh, sort of obedience versus a dictatorship um, because if we think about it, it... it to an outsider, I appreciate potentially it could seem a little bit nefarious, um, but but really the difference is that that religious organisations such as the Amdiya Muslim community they they work on not just it's it's not blind obedience either. This this is this is a, I think a really key point to make. Right? Yes, if uh, if uh, if your senior leader tells you that this is the direction we're we're moving in then we move as one, right? Because that unity is what keeps a community strong. However, it's also crucially important to maintain those channels through which the entire membership is able to raise its voice and say that actually we think we should also investigate looking into 
X, Y or Z, whatever those initiatives that people are interested at looking into. For example, on a local level, it might be a case of you have a local football meet, meet up regularly, but potentially the, the, the people in that area are interested in, say, for example, playing cricket, right? There's a case of it shouldn't just be a blind following of we're only going to play football. If you, if you want to play cricket, you just speak up and you say, you know what, we'd like to organise a cricket meet up as well. Um, I know I've picked a very, very sort of low level example here, but, but that, that, that same principle, that same idea works throughout the organisation. Um, uh, and, and it's very much through, through that kind of ideology where leaders are accountable to their members, um, but, uh, but in return, they, they expect the loyalty and, and, and the obedience of those members uh, when decisions are made. Right. Yes, it's a consultative process, but on the other hand, when uh, when ultimately leadership has to make a decision, they expect the 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 membership body behind it to follow as one. As in, because yes, it's it, it. I think everyone understands, right? When you have a large group of people, in the case of the MDM Muslim Youth Association, where we're well over ten thousand members across the UK at the moment, right? We. We all know that that we we will make decisions, um, and not everyone who 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 is affected by those decisions will agree with it. We get that, but but again, those decisions are based not on the basis of do I or does anyone else get benefit from it, but actually looking at where is the benefit for for the collective here. Um, and again, these are these are are any any sort of role of of uh, sort of serving within that community is always seen as 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 a privilege and an honor but never as something that you should take for granted right i think all office bearers are are, are regularly encouraged to remember that that any duty they have is a duty back to to the community as in they owe the community and nobody owes them anything right so actually you could almost argue it's 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 like a job but you're you're not getting paid with money but you are getting paid with the support of the community and you know you're advancing a cause you believe in um what this really leads into though is this is clearly a very different kind of leadership to what we see in politics right politics uh i think depends on on people pledging loyalties and and uh to to their people uh, for example, Michael Gove was fired because he he said to, to Boris Johnson he should leave, right? <laughs> now, that 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 is sort of heading down a slightly slippery slope there because, uh, again, His Holiness the Caliph has has mentioned as well um, in his Friday sermon on the sixth of June two thousand fourteen um, that some people confuse the concept of total obedience to religious leaders to that of the unquestioning support of worldly leaders, such as. Adolf Hitler. Now he was an he was a he was a prime example of somebody who who, who demanded the respect and and loyalty of people. Otherwise, I think I don't need to say what happened uh, to to those people who who did not follow in in his in his vision. And and His Holiness wanted to to make it very clear that that for every member of of this community, there's a great difference between. Uh, a caliphate and a dictatorship right yeah. because the difference is that particularly in religion particularly within islam yeah. we we recognize that there is no compulsion in religion so it's a case of if somebody does not agree they are very welcome to leave that fold of the community 
right? Mm-hmm. But but it's very much a case of if you're in, then please be in fully committed and 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 be loyal, right? I think I don't think that's a very difficult ask to make yeah. of of a group of people, is it? And talking about uh, uh, caliphates or khalifas, um, I'm going to come on to Hamad very quickly about uh, Hazrat Umar uh, and how his leadership um, excelled uh, throughout his time. Yeah, so Hazrat Umar was known for being an exemplary leader and caliph of the Muslim community at the time. Um, and it was based upon the examples of the Holy Prophet He established, you know, systems of taking censuses to determine the number of citizens. There was also distribution of food under a rationing system to ensure that everyone was, uh, you know, getting equal access to resources. Um, and there was also a um, sort of a, a, a um, truthful uh, and representative establishment of Islamic government, whereby every person who was called um, to a duty was represented and represented and held to the responsibility of the office. But there's also this one um, instance, I'll say it very quickly, about Hazrat Umar talking to a woman. Um, he was helping her, I think, tending to her water or something. And she said, thank you for helping me. Um, I've heard this Hazrat Umar is an incredible tyrant of a leader. And Hazrat Umar was obviously there. She didn't recognize him. And he said, well, uh, may God bless his soul for his efforts or something like that. So his level and example of selflessness um, was this unparalleled, especially in the realm of being a leader and holding so much power. He didn't let it corrupt him. And he always stayed true to the mission of, you know, achieving equality and spreading the message of Islam that he knew. Thank you for that, Hamad. Yeah, the selfless act and leadership of Hazomad, uh, the second caliph of uh, Islam after the Holy Prophet, um, of course, showed us and um, really expanded Islam throughout the um, Arabian Peninsula, uh, what we saw there, and an example there again of uh, how he uh, developed sort of a system of governance, um, got to know who, who the people are within the, uh, within the fold of Islam and uh, what can be done. Uh, and that is sort of what a leader needs to be, needs to be accountable, selfless, uh, needs to have, of course, a few of the good characteristics as well. Um, we'll take a short break. There's the 11 o'clock news, and then we'll be back again to talk about our next topic. So join us after a short break. Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. The world cannot accept me, because I do not belong to this world. But those who are gifted with a measure of otherworldliness are the ones who accept and will accept me. The one who rejects me rejects him who has sent me. And the one who is grafted to me is grafted to him who I represent. I bear a torch which will illumine all those who come close to me. But the one who entertains suspicion and doubt and runs away will be subjected to darkness. I am the impregnable fortress for this age. Whoever enters my fold will be protected from thieves, robbers, and the beasts of the wilderness. I call to witness God Almighty, who holds my life in his hand, that compared to every other soul, he has gifted me with overwhelmingly greater ability and access to the understanding and the deeper wisdom of the Holy Quran. If any of the Malvis, traditional Muslim scholars, who opposed me in response to my repeated invitations had attempted to outshine me in the exposition of the Holy Quran, 
God would have most certainly frustrated his attempts and exposed his ignorance. Hence, the understanding of the Qur'an which has been granted me is a sign of Allah the Glorious, and I have full trust in Allah's grace that soon the world will begin to see that I am true in this claim. I am not alone. That noble Lord is with me. No one could be closer to me than him. It is only by his grace that I have been granted a loving soul, ever willing to serve his cause in the face of suffering, so that I should render with zeal and sincerity outstanding services in the cause of the faith and carry out to victory great expeditions for Islam. He has commissioned me to accomplish all this and none can make me desist from pursuing this cause. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life. Here, Joe, myself, Umar Buddy, and my co host, Noshwan Zafar, and Hamad Khan. We just finished uh, speaking about uh, leadership, what it takes to become a leader and what are sort of some of the characteristics and moral values you must hold and what are we looking for uh, and what Islam promotes. Uh, we're now going to move on to uh, climate change, uh, something which we are about to experience, uh, if you believe it or not, uh, on Monday, uh, well, starting from Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, with the breaking rec- record-breaking uh, weather in the UK and around the world as well, um, if you are not uh, with us at the moment uh, but in any case just to remind you you can contact us and take part in the conversation on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us on voice of islam uk we look forward to your response and calls uh, nevertheless um, let's uh, hand over to uh, hamad hamad talk us through climate change uh, we've spoken about climate change a lot uh, in our shows previously as well and um, this time we've taken a sort of a different angle yeah um, i mean we recognize the importance of actually talking about climate change primarily in the context of leadership as well because it's such a part in the pun hot topic in terms of um whether leaders are actually recognizing the consequences of changing weather patterns the um Uh, disproportionate burdens on poorer nations and poorer people in deprived areas. For example, well, we'll talk about it later on, but pollution is also an aspect of climate change. But um, And how they can deal with um, this crisis that's looming on our horizons, really, um, is the question, whether our leaders are actually up for the challenge and whether they're recognizing the risks that's posing to everyone. For example, obviously, as you said, on Monday and Tuesday, There'll be areas experiencing 40 to 41 degrees. The Met Office has, you know, for the first time ever, produced its red warning. But climate change, in essence, is talking about the global average temperature and it's increasing over time. Um, And there's an interesting debate on what climate change actually is and how you define it, um, because it could be defined across a certain period of time and therefore climate change wouldn't be recognised. You won't actually be able to see the effects of climate change. 
But if you look at pre-industrial era um, and you close the scope of what you're looking at in terms of um, global average temperature, you can see an almost exponential increase. Um, and that's, you know, the sort of chemistry behind that is that as we are using our energy resources, our non-renewable resources like fossil fuels, we are creating carbon dioxide as a uh, byproduct and that's going into the atmospheres um, and basically keeping the sun's heat rays within the Earth's um, uh, surfaces and that's uh, increasing the Earth's average global temperature. But also it's being locked into our oceans and so there's evidence to say that it's acidifying our oceans and threatening the ecosystem and marine life um, within our seas, which also will then indirectly affect us because a lot of our food sources is from the sea. Um, but it poses the question about how can we tackle climate change and what we should do about it. And I, I, I'll get to your views as well about it. But one of the things you know that you see online quite a lot is uh, use a plastic, uh, use a metal straw or use a paper straw to save the turtles. You know, like um, we've seen a lot of um, established uh, merchandises and franchises, uh, franchises. I mean, sorry, that have started to use paper straws. Um, and there's this idea of being more green and more conscious, environmentally conscious in their practices. Um, you can see it with uh, normal super supermarket stores that are increasing their, uh, uh, it's not a tax, but a levy on the plastic bags that they use. They're trying to um, enforce users to change their behavior. Uh, the government is also doing that by um, doing some sort of tax relief with uh, electric cars as well. So um, you have ULED zones that are being, uh, if you have, I think, is it diesel and petrol cars, or particularly petrol cars, um, that you have to pay for uh, because of the emissions that your car is producing. And so all of this is to change the behavior of the individual. Now, the argument, I say, is that is it the problem and choice of the, well, is it the concern of the individual or is it the concern of those that are creating uh, the systemic issue? And that is the fossil fuel industry. That is the military industrial complex. So the military industry, especially the U.S. military industrial complex, is one of the largest climate producers in the world. Um, and that's just talking about how much um, pollutants they're releasing just from their bombing. We're not even talking about the catastrophe of war that they unleash on everyone, just environmental damage alone. They're one of the largest uh, polluters in the world. So that the fossil industry, military industrial complex, that's also looking at um, other industries, so the car, car industry that's tied to the fossil fuel industry. But just looking at why it should be the concern of the individual or and it shouldn't be up to the organizations and governments to change legislation and policy. And I was wondering what your opinions were um, about, you know, whether individuals should be more concerned about climate change or whether it should be our leaders who should take the lead and change policies to create a larger systemic shift and have a better effect for our climate. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a lot to take on board with that, isn't there? So I would argue that, yes, while, while we all need to take our individual responsibility, in the grand context of things, uh, we are but, but a dropper in the bucket, really. Um, uh, one of the statistics I think Hamad, you and I mentioned on, on a show in the past was we talked about there are 20 firms that are behind a third of all global carbon emissions. Um, and and I think our listeners won't be surprised to hear most of these are, 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 are sort of uh, 
petroleum chemical companies, right? Uh, so Saudi Aramco, 59... Uh, Put 0.26 uh, billion tons of carbon dioxide uh, since 1965. Chevron 43 billion tons. Gazprom 43 billion, and so on. Right, and and the point being that that there are there are contributors to to pollution on scales, uh, not just one, but several magnitudes larger than than the the than the private citizen individual. Right. Um, can we make decisions in our personal lives, such as, for example, going for a walk or using a bicycle instead of a car for, for short trips? Absolutely. Can we limit our our travel abroad unnecessarily? Absolutely. But on a bigger scale, there there are companies, uh, there there are countries that are are taking actions that just dwarf. The, the the sort of contribution towards this negative impact by the end end user the the the, the average citizen um, so really I think while we should never discourage people from making their uh, playing their part I think the onus really is on big business and and on on government scale entities uh, to take significant action things like encouraging people to buy electric cars all well and good it sounds great in in theory right but obviously it's a new technology relatively speaking um and therefore it has certain limitations it is generally more expensive at least on the upfront cost the the than a petrol or diesel powered car um and so obviously it, it is therefore up to governments and to the companies uh to to help the citizens to make more uh, ecological decisions um but then th- we hear about things like the plastic straw debate, which I think Omar wants to talk about. So, I want, oh no, okay. So, the the plastic straw one's interesting, right? Because we we obviously hear that we must save the turtles because they're accidentally sucking in the plastic straws in the Pacific Ocean, right? Uh, and while I do not disagree with that in the slightest, uh, I just feel like potentially our, our priorities are slightly in the wrong place here because if we're putting all our focus into into to low level suffering we're kind of forgetting that actually there are human beings that are suffering as well uh, i'm thinking predominantly of of people living in sub-sahara africa people living in in south america in the middle east and so on the people who are experiencing more severe droughts every year people for example in bangladesh who are, are suffering from more extreme flooding seasons every year i.e there is extreme weather taking place and the irony of all of this is that for 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 the most part not not everywhere but but in in many many cases it is the those people who are not contributing in significant numbers or volumes towards climate change are the ones who suffer its effects the most whereas those of us who who manage to live relatively uh, comfortable lives uh or we've got we've got our cars we've got our air conditioning to keep us cool on a hot day like it will be on monday and so on and yet you just think actually it's those same devices that give us comfort are creating discomfort not just for other human beings but also uh creating uh, an increasing strain on on the environment and obviously all of the creatures that live within it yeah and um just to contribute my part to this um quite interesting um conversation um individual versus individual responsibility versus corporations government um responsibility i think um 
and, and and we can already see it that individuals are starting to make that push uh, or at least are adopting measures um, to try become greener uh, even at the very small small scale and it does depend on individuals to adopt it um, because at the end of the day it's going to be us the consumers who um, are, tr- are are going to adopt these new measures uh, it will take of course a much longer time but in the uh, offset as well we need uh, companies and governments to start um, sort of going out bigger on this and that's where I think uh, part of the problem also re- uh, is because as Nush has mentioned you know we are uh, what, what reference did you use the, the butter reference you used the, uh, the, the plastic straw uh, no, we're just like a small. Oh yeah, we're just a we're just a drop in the bucket, right? A bucket, so not butter. Uh, so really, uh, it, it, uh, our contribution, albeit it's going to be small scale, we need the bigger companies uh, to take a bigger uh, responsibility here. Because at the end of the day, what if when we and if we can get their um, <coughs> uh, environmental impact down. Uh, 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 to a very considerable bid, uh, if we can get them to start implementing higher volumes of uh, greener initiatives, only then can people uh, have much more trust that okay, if if companies are using this, then surely you know uh, we can also survive and live by uh, these rules as well. So I think we are moving uh, in the right direction. I think everyone agrees that we are moving in the right direction. But I think. Uh, what most people's concern is that we're moving at, at a probably a slower rate, uh, and you know, as as time will see, uh, you know, and as reports have always come out uh, that we do not have enough time. And I think to experience climate change, uh, you'll need to be in Britain on Monday and Tuesday, and hopefully, you know, it will be a safe. Well, extremely hot red uh, red warnings being given out by the Met Office, so uh, we'll have to just wait and see what the unfortunate impact will be. Because, of course, it will have downside to it, and uh, people will unfortunately suffer as a result of it. Uh, whether people will now start realizing actually this is a time uh, to change, or is this a time to still uh, wait on changes, uh, we'll have to. See. So. To add on to that further, I think it's it's also worth thinking that that obviously we hear about sort of these net zero initiatives. We hear about, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think it was this this milestone of we must stop before we get to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial uh, levels. Uh, I I do genuinely fear that whether or not it's officially at that number or not. I feel like actually we've probably already exceeded a, a turning point now for irreversible damage. But, but, but one of the the issues with climate change in general, particularly of of warming, is that this is actually a, a process that feeds itself. So we we cause damage, which causes the earth to get warmer, which in turn causes natural processes such as the release of CO two from peat bogs. Uh, to contribute further CO2 into the atmosphere, which then allows us to absorb further amounts of heat. Therefore, it's a self-destructive cycle. So, so I do fear that potentially we've we've hit that turning point already, um, and and we shouldn't actually be looking at at just can we reduce our carbon footprint. I think we very much need to be investing and looking into very seriously into measures of of, of carbon capture at this point, i.e., actively pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and burying it back in the ground 
because I think that is very much the only way uh, humanity has has any chance of of surviving. I mean, in in the news last week, or even this week actually, it was Yorkshire was on fire. Yorkshire is so far north. And and for anyone who lives in the south like us, we just think, well, it's usually kind of cold, maybe even quite wet. But no, Yorkshire's on fire. Siberia's on fire every summer, has been for the last few years. Siberia is one of the coldest places in the world in, during the winter. We're talking temperatures of minus 50, maybe even minus 60 degrees centigrade. And yet during the summer months, uh, also is, is, the, is the location of the world's largest fire pretty much year in, year out at the moment a size larger than the Amazon rainforest is typically on fire in, in Siberia. Um, and yet, w- we all seem a little bit laid back about this. I don't know about, about you guys, but but perhaps, uh, Hamad, what do you think? Are, are we taking it too easy as as an international community, or, 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 or is it a case of we still have time, do you think? Well, I'm glad you mentioned this, it's particularly the way that the media represents this issue. So I have like a couple of headlines So from The Guardian last year. It said the climate disaster is here. This is what the future looks like. And there was like a picture of just absolute bonfire, you know, red and orange in the air. Then there's another from The Washington Post a few years earlier saying that the world just has over a decade to get climate change under control. And then recently um, uh, there was a quote that said that the latest IPCC report for the international um, policy of climate change report is an atlas of human suffering. So there's this general media narrative of death, doom and despair, and it really does conjure this imaginational climate apocalypse, like we're, we're, we're in the end of time. And my gripe with that is that, A, there's actually a lot of scientific inaccuracies, not to say that climate change doesn't exist, it's to the extent which the media sensationalizes it, and that's nothing new, and that's not, you know, um, specific to just the climate change issue. That's just the way that the media works. But there's scientific inaccuracies. For example, you guys may remember the Australian bushfires at the start of 2020, you know, when we thought that that was going to be the worst thing of 2020 in January. And people said that there was over a billion animals that died. And unfortunate as it were, and they said that this is the catalyst of the species collapsing, um, well, the biodiversity of our species collapsing. We talk and hear about the save the turtles. We say that the pandas are under threat of extinction as well. That's just 2%. For species to be extinct, for a vast number of species and for biodiversity to collapse, you need to reach over 70%. And that's not to say that we shouldn't focus on the 2%, but that's to say that we overly focus and um, really highlight that 2% to the point where we think that that is you know, calamity, and that's apocalyptic to have that switch. So scientifically, that's inaccurate to have narratives saying that this is the beginning of a collapse in our biodiversity, and, you know, our food systems are going to change, and whatever whatever have you in that. So that's my gripe on the media narrative. But my other gripe is around the sort of solutions that people pose uh, on climate change and climate mitigation, and there's this term that I want, you know, you, you guys should really remember, it's environmental racism. And I remember when I heard it, I was like, what is that? That's just, you know, some sort of rubbish term that's been made up. But it's quite extraordinary. And it speaks to how Western powers in particular, who have experienced vast number of economic success through uh, post-industrial successes that have created uh, vast carbon dioxide emissions, 
they then go to countries such as South Africa, and this has happened, and they put forward green energy deals for the country. Uh, for example, they'll say that you know people should start cooking on methane gas, or there will be policies and uh, local community projects for uh, villages to start using cow patties as their sources of fuel rather than you know gasoline or whatever have you. So the thing with that is that as a Western sort of community, we've experienced the successes of, you know, fossil fuels. And after experiencing those successes, we're then going to developing countries and saying that you shouldn't be using the same keys to our own success. And you should be using things that are ultimately a lot more primitive. There are arguments to say, well, actually, we should still try to develop newer green energy, but that's not really happening in the developing world. And what's really the crux of this matter is that you're putting the burden and the blame, again, on the countries that have least to do with the problem and have least contributed to the problem, because they're not the ones that have offshored their carbon emissions. There's another thing. Um, so when the UN was drafting in 1998, um, resolutions about how to change climate change. There was a 400% increase in trade. This is around the increase and boom in uh, globalization. And the US in particular, they did a very clever thing. So any emissions that was associated to uh, their freight, so you know, basically um, ferries that were carrying cargo, they, because it was in, in transit and in between nation states, they didn't put that as their own carbon emissions. And so what they literally did was offshore that carbon emission to the country that was receiving um, that cargo. And so, again, that shows you the inequality that's around climate change and how we're looking to solve climate change and the measures of climate change that we use. There's vast, really, racism in this debate. And so that's what environmental racism is. And I think we should really focus on that as well when we think about climate change. That's an interesting uh, take on how how uh, different types of um, racism still exist, and if we can call it that, or in a, in inequality uh, around the world uh, with that. So thanks for that, Hamad. Um, we're reaching uh, the sort of end time for this topic. So just uh, uh, some other things uh, to mention. Um, Hamad, if you could uh, just um, quickly give us um, a rundown, maybe, on uh, some of the things which is really, or some of the key factors which is really holding us back uh, to, um, holding us back really uh, from making major improvements in, you know, making our world greener or making a step towards uh, a positive uh, world and trying to stop climate. What are some of the key factors, maybe, that um, uh, that that are out there that are st- sort of stopping us? Sure. So to link it back to leadership, there's sort of this perversity, paradox, and hypocrisy in a lot of our political leaders, and where we subsidise the fossil fuel industry to vast amounts. I think it was around five billion pounds a year, or five billion dollars a year, actually. Um, that's the fossil fuel industry that we subsidise to. That's the money that the fossil fuel industry is not using, that they're saving on and carrying on polluting our climate. And that money is vastly needed to solve issues around um, green technology innovation. So how do we make sure that we have better electrical batteries? How do we um, look for better carbon capture, as Noshi was saying? 
but none of that is happening. And the other barrier is the media narrative. So the, the reason why I was talking about those headlines is because that's really where the buck stops. You know, we say the end is near, the climate is breaking, and we're all going to die very soon, full stop. And that's very interesting, because mentally, that's also a full stop as well. No one thinks about how we can mitigate climate change, how we can innovate the green technology. And this is very peculiar, because, for example, any other global issue that we will have, there would be a, arms, a call to arms to, you know, innovate. So, for example, cancer. We don't think that cancer is the death of humanity. You know, we look for new resources and new um, uh, sort of funding and new research to mitigate this issue. And we have done. We've made vast improvements in uh, cancer treatment. But um, strangely, with climate change, it's, it's really, again, it's this apocalyptic language that's becoming a barrier because it just sets in this doom and despair. Now there's some doctors that prescribe climate anxiety. So a lot of the younger generation who have been brought up in this environment of doom and despair around climate, you know, they reckon what their future will look like. And so some doctors controversially are prescribing or diagnosing sorry, um, anxiety uh, induced by the climate change narrative. And so that's the main barrier in my view, um, because once we realize that this is an issue like any other issue that humanity faces um, and that we can solve, that will be the beginning of looking at how we can mitigate climate change appropriately and that's also to do with our economic order and structure that uh, catalyzes carbon dioxide emissions unnecessary carbon dioxide emissions as well um, and, and and with that you will also have a more equitable and just world so this climate change issue you know touches upon a lot of things in the world but it has to start with how we see it and what the media narrative is Thank you for that, Hamad. So we'll take a short break and we'll come back with a new section from for our Saturday Morning Live show with us at least. Uh, it's to review a book. And of course, I can reveal to you which book it is. And it's, it is the book called A World Crisis and the Pathway to Peace by His Holiness Hazem Musur Ahmed, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, and there's a, some series of... Um, speeches he gave around the world which we'll look at into over the uh, spread of the show and of other shows and hopefully uh, something new which we will look at but let's take a short break first and we'll introduce you more of what we're going to do next so join us after a short break three proofs of the truthfulness of the prophet Messiah. one in the hadith of the holy prophet of islam sallallahu alayhi wasallam he has said that there will be two signs in the support of the Mahdi that have never occurred before since the creation of the heavens and the earth. These two signs are eclipses that would occur on very specific days during the month of Ramadan. In 1894, a few years after Hazrat Musa Ghulam Ahmed made his claim of being the Prophet Messiah, India and the subcontinent were witnesses to an eclipse that had occurred on the first of the three days of the full moon and in Ramadan. In the following year, in 1895, the USA had witnessed an eclipse that had occurred on the second of the three days of the full moon again in Ramadan. Now we know eclipses aren't something that can be man-made, nor is there any technology on the planet that could create such a spectacle. So this has to be the work of God. This is clear, undeniable evidence in support of the truthfulness of the promised Messiah. 2. Performing miracles is commonly associated with prophethood. Jesus is said to have healed the sick. Moses is said to have parted the sea, and Jonah is said to have survived the belly of the whale. On one occasion, during the time of the Prophet Messiah, there was one student named Abdul Karim 
who fell severely ill with rabies. Now at that time, there was absolutely no cure nor any medication that could heal Abdul Karim. So the Promised Messiah prayed for the recovery of the student and Abdul Karim made a miraculous recovery. Now, without any human intervention, this can only be attributed to the work of God. A second miracle during the time of the Promised Messiah is how he had perfected the Arabic language overnight. Now, how long would it take me or you to learn a language? Some years? Even people with degrees find it difficult to call themselves experts in the language. The Promised Messiah received a revelation of 40,000 Arabic words overnight, a language that is commonly known to be one of the most complicated languages in the world. This can again only be attributed to the work of God in support of the truthfulness of the Prophet Messiah. Three, we can see from the history of the prophets that they have always been victorious in their claims and their missions. Similarly, the promised Messiah has been victorious in his claims and his missions. The promised Messiah received a prophecy from God that I shall cause thy message to reach the corners of the earth. Now the promised Messiah received this prophecy in a rural village in India in Kardian, an unknown town to the world. Now we can see that a little over a hundred years later, his message and his claim has reached over 200 countries around the world. This is nearly every country on the planet. Now who can now say that his message has not reached the corners of the earth? These are clear proofs of the truthfulness of the Prophet Messiah. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life. Here, Jumma myself, Umar Bhatti, uh, my co host, Noshawan Zafar. Uh, we've just spoken about um, the cl- a climate change, something which, of course, uh, all of us will be experiencing, I have been experiencing and will be experiencing. Um, through the past and of course uh, in the future when we come to Monday and Tuesday um, some very great talks uh, we've had around that but uh, so really uh, it's um, it's going to be interesting how we move forward with that um, now you know we've introduced something new to our show which is a book review um, it's something uh, for the first time which we're doing so bear with us how we're going to try and do this uh, we'll try and work out the format but this particular book we've chosen is um, uh, is called uh, World Crisis and the Pathway to Peace by Hazrat Mirza Masroom, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and uh, this was uh, this has been uh, a series of speeches um, from around the world. He's been uh, who he has warned uh, uh, politicians and leaders and uh, those within society that of uh, how we can come together as uh, as one. Uh, this was, of course, uh, a um, published in. 2012 first in 2012 in the UK and the fifth edition uh, edition with this editions has also come in in 2016 and 2017 so really um, it is something which um, there's about there's about um, 
10 speeches I can see which have been listed uh, so really um, some interesting speeches I think a lot of us have read this book uh, at least once or twice uh, but it's always good uh, with the, the current situation around the world just to remind ourselves what His Holiness has reminded us and uh, we've picked out some key points um, we're going to be looking at two of the chapters, um, the first one being Islamic, Islamic perspective on the global crisis, and the second one is uh, the Islamic teachings of loyalty and love for one's nation. Now, let me give you a bit of a rundown on what the first um, speech is about, and I'll be going through with you on that. Uh, so, of course, Islamic perspective on the global crisis, which took place in London, 2008, British Parliament, the Houses of Common, where His Holiness delivered a speech to leaders, MPs, uh, and was, of, of course, given a tour as well. Uh, over there, uh, he was met by uh, a lot of uh, dignitaries as well. Um, really, um, we want to look at what the speech was really about, and I've picked up a few a couple of things uh, which His Holiness had mentioned, which I want to sort of uh, relay to our listeners. Now, um, one of the very first few things he mentioned was, of course, uh, the uh, extreme loyalty of uh, one's nation and um, he mentioned that the Ahmadi Muslim uh, community members are extremely loyal and it is of course an instruction from the Prophet uh, Prophet Muhammad may peace and blessing of Allah be upon him uh, who said that uh, love of one's country is an integral part of one's faith uh, and therefore this is something which is instilled within the Ahmadi Muslim community uh, that we have to uh, be loyal citizens uh, to our nations wherever we may reside uh, something which also the uh, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community has um, uh, also echoed another thing he mentioned uh, throughout his um, um, speech was the uh, responsibility of Muslims uh, first giving responsibility to uh, uh, the responsibility owed to God and then the responsibility owed to God's uh, uh, creatures, uh, creation, sorry. Uh, and that that is something which has actually stayed with me for a very long time uh, thinking about it because, you know, um, once you think about these two uh, dimensions, really, you're intertwined. Uh, when they're intertwined together, you really can't be committing any sort of major sins when you think about it. Uh, you know, at the time in 2008, of course, there was a... Uh, um, the uprise of ISIS as well, which was up, up and coming. Um, you had the Middle East um, problems, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, invasions. So there was some co sort of context as to why these, um, uh, why these, um, why this sort of came out. And from that sort of sense, you could see that um, for people who are listening, it would seem that Muslims were actually uh, the duty they had uh, was to discharge to God and to God's uh, creation. And continuing on, he um, also spoke about um, small-scale wars which were actually taking place, uh, which were not very healthy, of course, at the time. Um, he saw, spoke about, uh, you know, uh, geographical wars, religious wars, but of course religious wars were not taking place uh, at all in this present age is more about geographical in, in, in nature and um, 
he saw that the direction that in which um, the world was moving in today, it could lead to a world war. And something he's still going, uh, still advocating for is the third world war, uh, something which we are uh, moving towards and which would be a uh, real disaster if we are to uh, enter that uh, era of uh, a third world war. And it's something people are now openly talking about. This was, of course, spoken in 2008, and he's spoken about it uh, previously as well before that. And let's not forget... Oops. Let's, let's not forget the foresight involved in this, really. It's uh, in 2008, for, for anyone sort of, I guess, who, who can remember that far back, uh, with, with the exception of the recession, politically speaking, things were, were quite stable. Right, as in the U.S. Uh, and Europe had, had enjoyed a, a significant period of, of economic boom. Their political relationships with with the major powers of the East was was relatively healthy at the time. Um, in fact, two thousand eight was the year we had the Summer Olympics in in Beijing. Again, seen as as another example of, of effectively. Uh, sort of welcoming China on to, on onto the stage of the big players of the globe. Um, but then f- to have His Holiness a warning that he fears that these relations could break down at a time when everyone thought what could possibly go wrong because it's all going so well right now, it just shows the the immense level of foresight he has and, and clearly that divine guidance he receives. Indeed. Uh, and um, uh, thank you for that, um, Noshe. S- something which, of course, came out of that speech which... Um, to us um, at the time was a bit um, sort of new but something which we could um, sort of um, of course see was the mention of a, a, a global village um, it was a, a new concept really which we saw at the time uh, and His Holiness mentioned that uh, that the world has literally shrunk to a global village that in uh, in a way that could not have been imagined and previously uh, previously, we must realize our responsibility of human beings and should try to pay attention to solving those issues of human rights that can help to establish peace in the world. And this clearly uh, attempts must be based on fair play and fulfilling the requirements of justice. So really, um, the meaning of uh, of um, a global village is because we've got, become so close to each other with this uh, with the technology expanding way through and uh, flights connecting us literally within minutes uh, of course there being now a cap at Heathrow and flight delays uh, may not be possible but still the, the the way we are still connected with everyone throughout the whole world within seconds uh, we've become a global village and that we uh, un- we know what the news is uh, from all around the world we sort of ought to um, help other people uh, and help uh, fulfill the requirements of uh, justice. And furthermore, he um, uh, he mentioned uh, about uh, hating, uh, uh, sorry, not hating, uh, ending all hate uh, for uh, people because um, we could see that people are getting divided into blocks. Extremism is escalating. Uh, the financial and economic situation is worsening. And there's hatred uh, everywhere in whatever sorts of measure there is. And uh, we can, of course, see here uh, in the UK, prime example being in the 
block of you know being EU anti-EU. We've seen Russia and Ukraine creating a block. We're seeing uh, blocks in the Middle East, uh, and really, when you think about it, blocks everywhere are forming uh, and starting to. Um, create small-scale wars, which His Holiness uh, spoke about, and it will become really uncontrollable uh, at times. And the economy, which is, of course, down everywhere around the world, and especially in the EU and uh, the European, well, sorry, Western countries, I should mention, it is where that that uh, will be, uh, create problems. And that is uh, what um, His Holiness alluded to. Now, um, with uh, justice uh, also comes... Um, you know, we spoke about um, leadership in this, and and, and this really, um, there's more things Islam teaches, and His Holiness also uh, mentioned uh, a verse of the Holy Quran where he says, O ye who believe, be steadfast in the course of Allah, bearing witness in equity, and let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than which with, with justice. Be always just that is nearer to righteousness, and fear Allah. Surely Allah is aware of what you do. Chapter 5, verse 9. And His Holiness says uh, in that, that, um, this is the teaching for peace in society. Never depart from justice, even for your enemy. The early history of Islam shows us that this teaching was followed and all the demands of justice were fulfilled. I cannot give too many examples uh, of this, but uh, history bears testimony to the fact that after the victory of Islam, the Holy Prophet ﷺ, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, did not take any revenge from those who had tormented him, but forgave them and allowed them to adhere to their respective faith. And today, Peace can be established only if all requirements of justice are met for the enemy, not only in wars against religious extremists, but also in all other wars. And only such peace is everlasting. Uh, so in that sense, um, again, we're looking at um, looking to fulfill everyone's everyone's desires, so, uh, not desires, but um, uh, things that they want in a peaceful society we're not just just because we've won against one um a nation doesn't mean that we now uh, heavily criticize them but we you know look forward to continue to help them as well to come out of that uh, pain uh, that they have endured and of course um, wherever possible we try to help um that was um some of the key things that i took away from this uh um speech. Uh, we're going to go over to Noshwan, who's going to introduce to us uh, his uh, speech, which is um, Islamic's teaching, teachings of loyalty and love for one's nation. Yeah, so JazakAllah for, for that, Omar. And and so really, um, so, th- so His Holiness uh, has, has uh, over the many years of, of his, of his uh, tenure as the Caliph, uh, had the opportunity to to travel around the world, uh, uh, including uh, to, to to Europe, to to the Americas, to Asia, uh, to Australia, and so on. Um, and, and on on these tours, uh, he's had the opportunity, and he's been invited even uh, to speak to various groups of di- dignitaries, uh, parliaments. Uh, so including the U.S.'s Capitol Hill, uh, he's uh, spoken at the European Parliament at the. British Parliament, which is where uh, the speech Omar just referenced uh, w- uh, took place, um, and 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 the one we we're going to discuss now was uh, from a speech that His Holiness gave at the military headquarters of Germany in Koblenz uh, in 2012, um, and again, sort of uh, the overarching topic being uh, towards that loyalty and love for your country. I think. <coughs> 
to give a bit of context, I think His Holiness's speeches, particularly at public engagements like this, are always very, very topical, and they're always perfectly timed with the 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 public sentiment of of the moment. So in 2012, uh, Germany was taking on uh, refugees uh, from the Middle East. Uh, obviously, after the the war had broken out in Syria. Uh, and and a lot of uh, unrest in in neighboring uh, areas as well uh, and germany very graciously had decided it was going to take on a large number of refugees to assist them in in their time of need um now understandably uh we with any country taking on a large number of people uh particularly from from another part of the world uh, they might look a bit different to us they might look, uh, they might practice a different religion to the majority of us and so on people naturally have curiosity but also concern um uh, and that's not to mention that that particularly in the early 2010s uh, i think europe was still very much feeling the effects of the recession which had which had started in in 2007 in the us and really affected europe in 2008 2009 um so so we were very much still recovering from that and germany being the the major power in europe was very much still uh, at the front of european efforts to help bail out other european countries so so the german people clearly were were in a mindset of we have our own problems and yet we're here we're trying to help these other people so so not everyone is happy with such decisions but his holiness uh Uh, while I'm not going to 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 go through the entire speech I don't think we have time um I would, I've made a few notes on on a few 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 of the 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 topics his holiness touches upon um and so really first and foremost a fundamental principle of Islam is that a person's words and deeds should never manifest in any form of double standards of hypocrisy true loyalty requires a relationship built on sincerity and integrity it requires what a person displays on the surface to be the same as what lies beneath and this is i think a very key point uh, it, it ties back to what we were talking about leadership early on as well it also shows the reminder of well if people are opening their doors and and offering that help that there must be a genuine offer for help there's no point in bringing people over if you're going to treat them poorly he goes on to say therefore it is essential for a citizen of any country to establish a relationship of genuine loyalty and faithfulness to his nation it does not matter whether he is a born citizen or whether he gains citizenship later in life either through immigration or by any other means loyalty is a great quality and the people who have displayed this attribute attribute to the highest degree and best standards are the prophets of god their love and bond with god was so strong that in all matters they kept in view his commands and strived to fully implement them no matter what this illustrated their commitment to him and their perfect standards of loyalty and so again that 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 sort of uh, re uh, affirmation of uh, of that 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 criticality for for being loyal to your country i think particularly here in 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 western nations uh, many people from from my communities in uh, my family and so on uh, we come from another country is in uh, they immigrated here to the uk but we treat this place as if this is our home right as in we we work here we study here um we contribute to society and society has given us so much and 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 the least the very least i should say actually that we owe it is our loyalty so uh, in terms of and what does loyalty mean it means being a good citizen it means actually contributing 
to to the needs of the nation at a given time. So when the pandemic struck uh, a couple of years ago, uh, many members of our communities up and down the country um, went out to help their neighbours uh, where where we could. Um, whether that was gathering medicines, whether that was getting uh, shopping for the elderly or the vulnerable, things like this, right? And and just providing company to those who are lonely at the time. Um, these are the small acts that really allow us to to make a big difference when when everyone starts making these sorts of efforts it benefits our country immensely um furthermore um uh, his holiness talks about uh s- sort of the the importance of loyalty versus the uh, to a country versus uh sort of the fulfillment of the requirements of one's faith um and here he talks about there can be no sort of uh, sort of separation as such because Islam commands us that that we must be loyal to to the place in which we reside now I- in the simplest form really what does this mean it means for a muslim that if a country says you do this then you go do that because unless it unless it absolutely uh, objects to to your religious beliefs in which case maybe a conversation needs to be had about about that but but for example i cannot think of an example right now off the top of my head where 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 my country i.e the uk is telling me i have to do something that goes against my religious beliefs right i mean that would be like for example if 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 there was a national in, in, in initiative that everyone must go to the pub and have a drink that is something that would that would go against my my beliefs right and is something i can't comply with but such such an instruction seems absurd i don't think that that's going to happen um so he, he his holiness goes on um and he says the holy prophet muhammad peace and uh, blessings be upon him taught that the love for nation is is part of faith thus sincere patriotism is a requirement in islam to truly love god and islam uh, a person is required to love his nation it is quite clear therefore that there can be no conflict of interest between the con- uh, uh, between a person's love for their country and a love for their god as love for one as love for one's country has been made a part of islam it is quite clear that a muslim must strive to reach the highest standards of loyalty to his chosen country because that is a means of reaching god and becoming close to him therefore we cannot even separate this loyalty to our country from our faith because in order to become a better muslim to become a a a, a, a a, a higher level of 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 belief and uh, and nearness to God, we must show loyalty to the country that have given us opportunities that takes care of us. Now, his his holiness goes on uh, to say as well um, that bearing in mind that there are there are some countries in the world where where a country does not have uh, any any care for its citizens or or actively uh, persecutes them, even then. How can how can uh, an Ahmadi Muslim or indeed any citizen show loyalty to their country? And and even in this regard, he he has an answer, and he says that bearing in mind the state of affairs in countries such as Pakistan, where where the Ahmadi Muslim community is is sadly uh, facing a major uh, sort of opposition and persecution. Um, he said, it is quite natural then to wonder how in such circumstances the Muslims can follow the laws of the land. How can they continue to display loyalty to their nation? Here, 
Here, I, I should clarify that where such extreme circumstances exist, then the law and loyalty to the nation become two separate issues. We Ahmadi Muslims believe that religion is a personal matter for every individual to determine for himself, and that there should be no compulsion in matters of faith. Thus, where the law comes to interfere with this right, undoubtedly, it is an act of great cruelty and persecution. Indeed, such state-sanctioned persecution, which has occurred throughout the ages, has been condemned by the vast majority. If we look at the history of Europe, we find that people in this continent have also been the victims of religious persecution, and as a result, many thousands of people had to migrate from one country to the next. All fair-minded historians, governments, and people have determined this to be persecution and extremely cruel. And in such circumstances, Islam advocates that where persecution goes beyond all limits and becomes unbearable, then at that time a person should leave the town or the country and migrate to a place where he is free to practice his religion in peace. However, alongside this guidance, Islam also teaches that under no circumstances should an individual take the law into his own hands, nor should he partake in any schemes or conspiracies against his country. This is an absolutely clear and unequivocal command given by Islam. And so, even in, in times of such desperation, in, in which the, the conditions are, are so severe, um, his, his Holiness has advocated for peaceful means. He says, of course, you should reason uh, with those who, who make the rules in your country. Of course, you should strive for a peaceful outcome. But failing all other methods, uh, your 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 option really is to move to a place of safety and sanctuary rather than causing more trouble and more violence. And and I am very aware that we are reaching uh, the top of the hour, nearing the end of our show today. But but I hope obviously we've given you a good taster of of some of the speeches uh, of His Holiness from his book, um, which is available to buy in Waterstones as well uh, uh, at this point, uh, or online. Uh, it's also available to read uh, for free uh, if, if you search uh, the internet for it. Um, and so uh, we hope uh, that's given you a good taste for it. And, and if, if you would like to read it, please, we would very much recommend you to do so. I think we haven't really done... Uh, justice to, to, to the powerful words of His Holiness there. Um, but it's been a pleasure to, 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 to have this show today with you, Omar, and I think uh, we, we've had some great conversation, obviously, talking about uh, the climate change issues we, we've had today uh, that we're experiencing globally, uh, issues around leadership, again, very uh, pertinent to, to what's going on across the country at the moment. Uh, and again, it's, it's a great opportunity to self-reflect on on how things are currently progressing uh, uh, as a country, as a nation, and indeed globally, um, along with some very important and 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 sort of timely advice from His Holiness, the the Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, but with that, I, I would say to our to our listeners, thank you very much for listening to our show today. Uh, we we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed presenting it. Um, our Saturday morning live will be back next week uh, at 10am and we very much look forward to having you there as well thank you very much and assalamu alaikum God is the light of the heavens and the earth every light that is visible on the heights or in the valleys whether in souls or in bodies whether personal or impersonal whether apparent or hidden 
whether in the mind or outside it, is a bounty of his grace. This is an indication that the general grace of the Lord of the worlds envelops everything and nothing is deprived of that grace. He is the source of all grace, the ultimate cause of all lights and the fountainhead of all mercies. His being is the support of the universe and is the refuge of all high and low. He it is who brought everything out of the darkness of nothingness and bestowed upon everything the mantle of being. No other being than him is in himself present and eternal or is not the recipient of his grace. Earth and heaven, man and animals, stones and trees, souls and bodies have all come into existence by his grace.